If you have your Bibles with you this morning, we'll be in Philippians 4. Philippians 4. One of Paul's letters uh, to the church at Philippi. Galatians, Ephesians, then you have Philippians right after that. Be in chapter 4, verses 4 through 7 this morning. If you found your spot, would you please stand for the reading of Christ's Word. May you hear the Word of Christ. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this morning in which we can gather around your word. And so, Lord, at this time, will you open our ears, open our hearts, and open our minds to receive the word that you have set aside for this very day. And so, may we also receive it with thanksgiving, acknowledging that you are a good father who gives generously to his children incredible and wondrous gifts. And so may we receive that word with thanksgiving this morning, and may we live it out as your people, a people who have been empowered by your spirit to be able to present and demonstrate the gospel, not only with our lips, but with our lives. Open us to that this morning. We offer these things in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. This is our last uh, sermon on the spiritual disciplines. And to catch us up with where we've been and now where we are, we've looked through now 11 small things. For those who might not have uh, known where we've been, where we've traveled and explored this year, we've looked at one new small thing in our life. And we have tried to see it through the lens of Scripture of what this small thing is about and how we can be faithful in that very small thing. And so for the month of November, we've looked at the spiritual disciplines. And if you've read anything about the spiritual disciplines, you know that you cannot deal with the spiritual disciplines in four Sundays. It's impossible. But we have interwoven four unique spiritual disciplines. The first one was uh, dealing with what does it mean to put on the very virtues of Christ? How do we even begin doing that? Then we looked at receiving the scriptures and reading the scriptures and hearing the scriptures each and every day and each and every week so that we can be a people of the word. And then last week, uh, we looked at what it meant to follow in the ways of Christ in humility. And now here we've landed in the fourth Sunday of November with Thanksgiving. Because as I read the scriptures I think Thanksgiving certainly is a spiritual discipline to be able to wake up in the morning and see that day as a a gift from Christ our Lord. And so as we uh, move through this morning sermon, I do want us to see with those particular eyes that we are to receive each and every day, each and every gift, and even the sufferings that we are going through as a gift, somehow a part of Christ's plan. Let me begin this morning with a quote that I ran across a couple weeks ago as I was planning for this sermon. Here it is. 
When Paul is talking about rejoicing, gentleness, prayer, petition, and considering all things noble, just, right, lovely, and admirable, Paul is advocating something much more substantial, demanding, and even subversive for the Philippians. This writer is looking at this passage that we looked at this morning in chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. And in fact, he's going a little bit further and looking into verse 8 as well. But have you ever considered that? That Thanksgiving can be not only substantial, but subversive. And so when we are looking through this passage this morning, I want our eyes to see, our hearts to be captured, and our minds to be convinced that even the church's Thanksgiving, its very gratitude should be substantial. It shouldn't just flow from our lips and some sort of rote ritual thing that we do, but it's substantial that we, what we are saying has weight. But on the other side of it, that it is indeed a subversive witness to even our neighbors who need it. I hope you hear that, that need our thanksgiving, to need to see it and to be able to witness it. If you were to push me in trying to figure out what are the two verses, the meat of Philippians, I would answer in this. Philippians 1.27 and Philippians, Philippians uh, 3.20. Those are the two meatiest passages that I think you find in the whole letter of Philippians. You might say, well, what about Philippians 4.13? I can do all things through Christ who lives in me. It is one of those passages that I think it requires us to understand Philippians 1.27 and Philippians uh, 3.20 first before we can get to that passage that he's talking about in 4.13. So let me read those to you. Philippians 1.27 says this, Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the announcement or the gospel of Christ. And then you have Philippians 3.20 which Paul writes this, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we all eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Why do these two verses matter as it relates to Thanksgiving this morning? Well, let me give you why. First, we give thanks because of whose we are. We dealt with a whole sermon series in the spring about whose we are and who we are. I would push you, if you want to look uh, at a meteor understanding of that, I would push you back into March to look at that. But we give thanks because of whose we are. We belong to King Jesus who has brought us, uh, who has bought us with his blood because of this grace. We can give thanks for his many mercies. We belong to him and we are possessions of his grace. Second, we give thanks because of who we are. Not just whose we are, who we belong to, but also who we are in our identity. We belong to King Jesus, and we are, as Paul says in these passages, citizens of the kingdom. He even writes this to the Colossians in uh, chapter 1, verse 13. For the Father has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. And lastly, because we now belong to King Jesus and because we are citizens of his kingdom, we swear an allegiance unto him to live under his reign and according to his laws and instructions, which are opposed to the kingdoms of this world. You're going to see this morning that, yes, not only is Thanksgiving 
to be substantive, but it's to be subversive. How you give thanksgiving, your neighbors, your friends, your coworkers will realize that why in the world are you giving thanksgiving in this particular season of life? It's odd that you would do that. Let me give you one more quote. This comes from Diana uh, Butler Bass in her book, Gratitude. I'm sorry, I gave Miss Teresa another book to read. Forgive me. Let me say it again. Diana Butler Bass, Gratitude. It is an exceptional one. She writes this. It cannot be overstated that gratitude is an emotion, a complex set of feelings involving appreciation, involving humility, wonder, and interdependence. Gratitude is, however, also more than just an emotion. Gratitude is also a disposition that can be chosen and cultivated. It's an outlook toward life that manifests itself in actions. Gratitude is an ethic. It's a way of life, church. And so when we look at this passage this morning, keep in mind that it's not gratitude and thanksgiving. is not just an emotion that we feel, but it's a way of life into which we've been called. It's an emotion as well as an ethic. So let's look at these verses this morning. Philippians 4, verses 4 through 5. Let me reread those for you this morning. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all the Lord is near. First point this morning is that thanksgiving and gratitude is indeed an emotional response to King Jesus' work. Has anybody ever told you to cheer up? You probably have seen that at some point. Or maybe even to be thankful for what you have. There's this uh, quote that Garland's teacher had last year was, um, there, say it again. Yes, you get what you get and you don't throw a fit. In other words, be thankful for what you have. Or maybe somebody has even said this, you've, you should rejoice in this moment. But have you been so overwhelmed with emotional baggage that that's the last thing you wanted to do is rejoice? The last thing you wanted to do is to be thankful in those times. Because we're split between, we see the circumstances of our daily life and the last words that need to roll off our tongue are thank you. I do believe that everyone inside of these four walls this morning understands that. That, that sometimes we carry this emotional baggage, this pain that we cannot express gratitude. We cannot express thanksgiving. But when we remember that this Thanksgiving season it is indeed a set of emotions, as this author already pointed out. It is joy. There is a sense of homeliness about Thanksgiving, that there is a warmth that's wrapped around the Thanksgiving season, even a satisfaction in life, looking at family or what you have. Maybe you even see the abundance and wholeness that you acknowledge that this is indeed a gift, even when... You just can't fully say thank you for the gifts that you've been given. But when we remember what we also have an emotional baggage that's attached to the people that we've lost in this season, it's hard, isn't it? The family members, the loved ones, the friends, maybe even the coworkers or neighbors. 
we realize that the season also carries with it sadness. It carries with it loss and grief and pain and maybe even a sense of emptiness as well. So it's not just this joy and this holiness and this warmth and satisfaction and wholeness. It has also a tinge of sadness and loss and grief as well. But with this mixture of emotions that we can carry with us in this Thanksgiving season, how does the church, and as Paul points out in verse 4, how do we rejoice in the Lord always? In part, I think he reminds us that Christ is the comforter in verse 4. Look what he writes. The Lord is near. I don't think he's just rolling this off of his pen at the time. I think he understood that even in the midst of this pain and this hurt, the Lord is near. He is near to your troubles. Paul is trying to tempt our eyes and our hearts to turn toward our Emmanuel, the God who is with us. He's not removed. He is close and he is near to his people. If we keep our eyes focused on the difficulties, the situations in our life, the heartaches and the struggles, we will quickly forget that the God we love and worship is always near offering that comfort. And if you want to hear and focus on four words this morning, here they are. Christ is always near. You know, I asked you a couple weeks ago, what was one word that, that stood out to you at the end of the sermon? Just one word. I want you to hear those four words this morning. Christ is always near. And because of this nearness, Paul urges the church at Philippi, and I think he urges us as well, that our anxieties, our stresses, and our circumstances must not define our identities, and they certainly shouldn't um, determine our lives. Because He is always near, and we can and we should rejoice because the Lord has come near. He has offered comfort to His people. Second point this morning, not only is there an emotional response to what Christ has done for us and the fact that He is near, but the second thing is that thanksgiving and gratitude is also an ethical reflection of King Jesus. Look at with me at verses 5 and 6. Let your gentleness be, ex- be evident to all. The Lord is near. And then verse 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. The world around you and I can be ungrateful. We can be ungrateful. I've been that way this morning already. Unthankful. And because of both of those, violent at times. Much like our culture, the Roman world in which Paul was writing within was politically turbulent. But it also, socially, it wasn't very peaceful. Far from it. But when Paul reminds the Philippians to show gentleness in these verses, he's inviting them to be ethically very different from the world in which they live. Where you see that violence, Philippi, May you, as the church, be a people of peace and gentleness. Which brings out the point I made earlier, that being a citizen of Jesus' kingdom means that you swear allegiance to this king and not to any empires of this world. One writer notes that the way Rome worked in order to keep societies under their power during this day, Rome would bring crosses If you've read anything about the way that Rome would really mess with your mind, is that when you would walk into the city of Rome, they would have crucifixes lining up 
the entrance of Rome to remind you that you're not truly in power. And all these people hang because they tried to push back. So they would bring in crosses. They would bring in crippling taxes, agricultural exploitation, economic destruction to their own citizens. They would bring in war and violence wherever it went. And so when you see Paul writing to these, uh, these first century Christians at Philippi, he is reminding them that where Rome might steal and they might cheat and they might destroy and exercise their power, Paul is calling the church to an alternative path, a path that looks nothing like Rome, but in fact it looks like the ways of the, the king Jesus himself. Instead of stealing, Paul says, do not withhold doing good to both not just your neighbor, but your enemy too. Instead of cheating, Paul says, deal honestly as if working before the Lord himself. And instead of destroying, Paul says, let gentleness be the tone of your mouth and the tune of your heart. But notice this in Philippians 4, 4 through 5. I think Paul is connecting gentleness to gratitude. Look at those verses. Let your gentleness be evident to all, he says. But then he adds, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving present request to God. Here's a church that lived under the tyranny and reign of Rome in its day and who were considered odd. The church was considered very odd and largely excluded because they did not swear Caesar as king but Christ as their king. And because of this allegiance to Jesus, they were dealt with in extremely hostile ways, including persecution. Not just, hey, we have this law that's going against what you believe, but they would actually pull them from their homes and beat them. They would hang them to the side of a buggy of a horse and then drive them through the whole city. They would take them into the Colosseums and then beat them more, cripple them, and sometimes kill them. So the persecution that Paul is talking about was very real to the church at Philippi. And because they continued to, even in the midst of these persecutions, practice gentleness, the gentleness of Jesus, Paul reminds them to be even thankful in the midst of these persecutions. How do you do that? You're being beat. You're being killed. Be thankful even in these situations and circumstances. We don't typically see that today, do we? You've been persecuted, give thanks. We don't think like that as Americans. When we see persecution in our own lives or some sort of pain in our own lives, we try to pull ourselves away from it as much as possible. We want to keep it completely at bay. But it seems to me then that we need to have our vision corrected by the scriptures in this case. That we begin even seeing our sufferings as a participation in the sufferings of Christ. And that's very hard. I understand that. It's very hard to be able to see that and to accept that in our lives. But how Paul and the early apostles understood suffering, they understood it in that way that they were participating in the very sufferings of Christ in some mysterious sense. Because you have Peter writing one of his letters where he says this, To this, as in suffering, to this suffering you were called because Christ suffered for you, here you go, 
leaving you an example. You want to know how to suffer? Look at Christ. You know want to have, you want to know how to give thanksgiving to the Father even in persecution? Look to Christ. So here's my point as it relates to suffering. Remember what I said at the beginning of today's sermon, that the church's thanksgiving, its gratitude, is a subversive witness to our neighbors. It's not just to be substantial in our emotions, but also subversive in the sense that it is meant for our neighbors, our friends, and our family members. In the current and future season of suffering that you experience, giving thanks to Christ in that season I understand it is difficult. And it even sounds crazy. But the fact of the matter is, not only do we see in Scripture inviting us to say thank yous for our sufferings, but they also give us meaning to our thank yous. When your neighbors or your friends or your family members are seeing your suffering, give thanks to Christ and watch how they respond. They'll think you're absolutely odd. But the church, we're called to be a people who give thanks not only in the best of our times, but also the worst of our times. And somehow we are connected to the very work of Christ when we do those things. Here's one quote I have for you from Tim Keller, a former pastor in New York, who wrote a book called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. He He wrote this. Suffering transforms our attitude toward ourselves. It humbles us and it removes unrealistic self-regard and pride. It shows us how fragile we are. Suffering removes the blinders. It does not so much make us helpless and out of control as it shows us we have always been vulnerable. We've always been dependent on God. And here's his point. Suffering merely helps us wake up to the fact of depending on God and living in accordance with His will. Saying thank you in the midst of suffering is not showing your weakness, but actually showing how fragile this situation is and you're giving it completely over to Christ and depending on His grace and mercy to be able to strengthen you even in the midst of that pain. Third point. Thanksgiving and gratitude is a worshipful exaltation of Christ Jesus. When we exalt something or anything, we raise it, that thing or a person higher to a position above all other things. That's what we mean when we say exalt. So church, when we give thanks to Christ for his redemptive work, what we are saying is that we are raising him to a position he rightly deserves. We're acknowledging that's the position above everything else. But when... We're grateful to Christ even in the midst of His merciful kindness towards us. We acknowledge the ways of our King are always good. Despite how we feel at that moment, regardless of difficult circumstances that we're going through, and no matter the problems we have or will face, we are exalting Christ because that's the position He is in. Providentially carrying out His will and His ways in our lives. And so when we exalt King Jesus, we are practicing, here it is, a gratitude and thanksgiving. To worship is to say thank you. To say thank you to Christ is an act of worship. 
It doesn't have to be this long prayer. It doesn't have to be a sermon. It doesn't have to be a three-minute song. A thank you to Christ is an act of worship. And we are exalting the name that is, as Paul says in, later on in Philippians, above all names. And so according to Paul, the pro- what's the promise of exalting Christ as king? That through thanksgiving and even in these time of turbulence, read with me in verse 7, he says, here's the promise, the peace of God, which transcends all understanding. It will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The beautiful picture that I think you see again and again throughout the New Testament is that this God who is above our understanding and our knowledge of his will and his ways, here's what he does. He descends into our daily lives. Christ left heaven in order to take on human flesh to show us an example, to buy us back from our own sin and brokenness. He meets us in the midst of our earthly living. He doesn't stay transcendent. He descends into our mundane daily world and graciously gives us a peace in the midst of that persecution, pain, and even times of joy and warmth. And it is this peace that guards our hearts, says Paul, and it guards our minds in Christ Jesus. Paul, when he uses that word guard, it actually is a military type of term. It is a guarding of this God around his people that like a soldier, this God watches and stands ready to offer a peace in the midst of war and battle outside the gates. And so as we look at this very moment of suffering and pain and the like, we have a God who is guarding, looking out for us and even meeting us into our daily lives. All of this leads to one final question for us this morning. Why can't your thanksgiving just be kept to yourself? If it's indeed emotional response to King Jesus' work, can it just stop there? I would say it can't. Because when we are proclaiming that Christ has done this work on our behalf, of course there's an emotional response. But as I said a minute ago too, there's an ethical responsibility to live out that very response in thanksgiving in in gratitude so yes it is an emotional response to king jesus work it's an ethical reflection of his life and as we said it's a worshipful exaltation of who this christ is that there is no name above his so it's not just a turn inward of emotion it's not just a movement outward of ethical living it is also a movement upward the smallest of thank yous that says Christ, thank you for this. I don't like it, but thank you for it. Or I do love it, and thank you for it. That no matter what season we're at in life, there's still a thank you to be said. So we could say, indeed, that Thanksgiving is a public recognition of God's work seen in and through the person and work of Jesus. Gratitude is and a way of life. It cannot be held within us, church. It cannot be just this emotion. It is a public display of the work that Christ has done and the work that Christ is doing in and through us. And so it is public.
publicly displayed. So if I could offer an invitation for you this morning, look for the ways, no matter what season you're in, to say thank you for the very gifts that Christ has given to you this week and the days after. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the reminder that your word is a gift. That we sometimes we might read it quickly, we might glance at it, or we might not even touch it at all. But it's on these Sunday mornings that we're reminded that it is a gift from you. And that without it, we could not understand your will. It doesn't mean we can exhaust your knowledge, but we have an inkling of the call that you have in our lives, the purpose and the meaning of our suffering. And so, Lord, I pray for each and every single person in here this morning that wherever they're at in that chapter of life that we mentioned a minute ago, if it is a season of joy and warmth and satisfaction and wholeness, may they give thanks. But if it's also in the season of pain and hurt and suffering and doubt and maybe even fear, may you remind them to say thank you as well. And that in some mysterious sense, in both seasons of life, we're participating in your work. A Christ who came near to us, who lived in our midst, who gave us an example, who died for our brokenness and sin, but also who does not leave us. But you are ever near to your church. You're ever near to your people. And so as we move into this week of thanksgiving, may those, those words slip from our tongues. Thank you. Thank you for the gifts that you have gifted to us. Thank you for the love that has been shared, the mercy and kindness that has been given. May we be a people of gratitude and thanks. Lord, we offer these things in the name of your Son. Amen.